Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us today. Love to see a packed house of everybody. I'm sure uh, you're looking forward to an interesting discussion here on uh, the, the pending free trade agreements, uh, not to mention a couple free sandwiches. A uh, little added perk, I hope. Uh, but uh, we, uh, we're real excited today. I think it was a perfectly timed event to talk about the free trade agreements today, not just because of the legislative calendar, uh, where it looks like we may move to these free trade agreements shortly, but also because we had a study that just came out yesterday at Cato uh, by Dan Griswold, our speaker here to my left. As promised, free trade agreements deliver more trade. Manufacturing exports receive an extra boost. And uh, Dan will, will talk about this study in, in, in detail, obviously, but I just want to make sure that you know that this study, as well as a few other Cato materials, are available on the registration desk uh, just outside there. Hopefully, you pick them up on your way in. If we uh, ran out or you didn't grab one, uh, they are all are available on our website, Cato.org, as is all Cato publications, uh, the only exception being uh, Cato Books, uh, but we do try to get those to Hill staffers, so if there are any Cato Books that, that you uh, are interested in checking out, uh, by all means let me know or, or one of my colleagues at the Cato Institute and we'll get them to you if you work on the Hill. Uh, one book that you may want to pick up is Mad About Trade, uh, Why Main Street America Should Embrace Globalization. It's a really interesting look at, uh, at, at why we should promote trade, why trade is good not just for, uh, for industry but for America at large and everyday citizens. So a great way uh, to help you learn to, uh, to talk about trade in a positive way as you're interacting with constituents, some of which may have a, uh, some natural hesitation about, about the impacts of trade. Uh, the author of that book, I should note, is... is uh, Dan Griswold, who I, I just mentioned, he's also our first speaker today, and the director of the Herbert A. Stifel Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, he's author authored a number of studies, several of which are, are on the table out there. Uh, prior to joining Cato back in 1997, he uh, worked as an editorial page editor at the Colorado Springs Gazette. Uh, and before that, he actually worked uh, here on Capitol Hill. He was the press secretary to Congressman Vin Weber. And if, if any of you are uh, old enough to remember Vin Weber, remember him as being a very, uh, very influential member of Congress, who I think is now still in, in town lobbying and, and having an impact in various ways. Uh, Dan uh, holds a bachelor's degree in journalism from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. He also holds a diploma, uh, a diploma in economics and a master's degree from the London School of Economics. With that, I'll turn things over to Dan. Thank you very much, uh, Brandon, and thank you all, all of you today for you know, braving the walk down the air-conditioned halls on this, uh, this hot day. I'm, I'm glad you're here, and I'm, I'm uh, delighted and honored to share the podium with Bill Lane uh, as well. I think we'll be a good uh, one-two punch, uh, bringing different angles. I'm going to give a broader overview of what these trade agreements would mean to the U.S. economy, how they fit into an overall view of U.S. economic and foreign policy. And Bill's going to have uh, a lot of colorful uh, details as well as his own uh, uh, analysis. I'm, I'm going to talk about the Korea Agreement and our study on that, the Columbia Agreement. I'm going to let Bill uh, talk a little bit about uh, Panama uh, and then uh, just some concluding uh, remarks. The Korea Agreement is a very economically significant agreement. It is the biggest trade agreement since the North American uh, Free Trade Agreement. Korea is the world's 13th largest economy. It is our seventh largest trading partner of all the countries in the world, both imports and exports. They're number seven. This agreement uh, would reduce barriers to trade uh, on 95% of products virtually immediately upon 
uh, enactment. Uh, some of the most important sectors uh, that will be affected by this agreement, they're also our top, uh, Korea's a top customer for civil aircraft, semiconductors, industrial machinery, chemical, plastics, cereals, other agricultural products. And the agreement will be of particular benefit to the U.S. agricultural sector, financial services, government procurement, uh, a very large uh, global uh, market. The U.S. International Trade Commission projects that upon full implementation, this agreement will promote U.S. exports by 10 to 11 billion dollars uh, a year. Uh, there's some controversy over beef and automobiles. Uh, I know Senator Baucus has uh, wondered about beef access. This, in my opinion, is really a non-issue. Uh, after the BSE uh, scare, uh, Korea has uh, reopened its market uh, to U.S. cattle under 30 months, which is the large majority of the market. So they're basically open uh, to U.S. beef, uh, and that has been growing. Uh, automobiles, the president uh, insisted on putting his stamp on the agreement. I think the auto provisions in the original agreement were perfectly fine. Uh, Korea actually has higher tariffs on uh, our automobile exports to there than we do here. It would have brought automobile tariffs down to zero, so they would actually be lowering their uh, tariffs more. And let's face it, there are some natural uh, reasons why we're going to buy more automobiles from Korea than they're going to buy from the United States. Uh, we just have a bigger market and a bigger appetite uh, for small, fuel-efficient Korean cars than they do for, oh, Ford 150 pickup trucks, uh, minivans, uh, Chevy Suburbans. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong or unjust or unfair. Uh, and uh, just think of all the happy American families uh, that are buying uh, more affordable, higher quality products because we can import vehicles from uh, Korea. I think the compromise that the president came up with, we can live with it, uh, but I think it took an agreement that was uh, 95% of a glass, a glass 95% full, and made it a glass 90% full. Uh, we extended the tariff so U.S. families will have to pay higher prices for Korean automobiles for a longer period because we're phasing out uh, uh, those uh, tariffs. But I'm, I'm quibbling over uh, small differences. I think the Korea agreement is going to deliver uh, increased trade uh, as promised. The Colombia agreement, Colombia is a smaller market, but in some ways that's just as, as an important agreement because of Colombia's strategic importance uh, in Latin America. Uh, Colombia is home to 45 million upwardly mobile, mostly pro-American consumers. Uh, they are the number three market in Latin America for U.S. goods, the number one market in South America for U.S. agricultural exports. Uh, like the Korean agreement, this agreement is going to lower their tariffs a lot more than U.S. tariffs. The U.S. market, uh, when the Andean Trade Preferences Act uh, is in force, is already virtually open uh, to imports from uh, Colombia. Uh, they have something like uh, an average 11 percent tariff uh, ranging higher on particular goods on U.S. Uh, exports uh, to Colombia. I know Bill's going to touch on this a little bit more. Uh, but once the agreement's implemented, uh, uh, immediately three-quarters of U.S. exports to Colombia are going to be duty-free. Uh, the large majority of the rest of them phased out after five or ten years. Uh, agricultural products, uh, there are some stubborn uh, protections uh, that are going to be phased out over 19 years. The phase-out periods seem to get longer and longer with these agreements, but uh, most of the benefit will come uh, right, right up front. 
this is something uh, very good. And, and again, some of the biggest winners of the Columbia Agreement will be uh, construction equipment, chemicals, uh, plastics. Uh, there'll be sharp uh, drops in tariffs for things like uh, beef, pork, wheat, corn, soybeans, uh, cotton. The U.S. International Trade Commission uh, estimates this will give a boost to U.S. exports of over a billion dollars a year. These agreements are integral if we're going to get anywhere close to President Obama's uh, goal of doubling exports uh, by 2014. The twist in the Columbia Agreement, of course, is, is political. Uh, U.S. organized labor has raised a, a stink over violence uh, against union members in Colombia. Don't get me wrong, one death is one too many, whether you're a union member or a non-union member. Uh, but let's look at it in context. And I think uh, uh, I would urge you all to look at our paper on the U.S.-Colombia trade agreement. And my Cato colleague, Juan Carlos Hidalgo, uh, contributed the section on looking at what's happening in Colombia in terms of uh, civil society and union violence, and it is a remarkable, positive story. In the last 10 years in Columbia, they were on, they were on the verge of being a failed state 10 years ago. Uh, under reforms, uh, President Uribe and continuing under President Santos, uh, the murder rate in Colombia has dropped by over 40%. It's dropped even more steeply, 75% against trade unionists uh, in the last uh, uh, 10 years. Uh, I visited Medellin a couple of years ago. It's a perfectly uh, functional uh, uh, city. The murder rate in Medellin, Colombia, is actually almost exactly the same as in Washington, uh, D.C., which I know uh, may not be saying everything, uh, but a, a union member is as safe uh, walking from the AFL-CI headquarters in Washington, D.C., as a union member uh, in uh, uh, Medellin. Uh, Juan Carlos cites uh, studies in Colombia that state-by-state uh, -state analysis shows there is no correlation between union activities and violence against union members. It's just that union members are caught up in the same overall uh, violence in that society that has all sorts of historical and cultural uh, reasons. Actually, to be a union member in Colombia, uh, you are much safer than to be a non-union member. The murder rate for non-union members in Colombia is six times higher uh, than it is uh, for union members. There is no systematic targeting of union uh, members uh, in, in Colombia. It is absolutely no reason uh, to hold up passage of this agreement. Passage of the agreement would actually strengthen the hand of the government against the forces of violence, the communist rebels uh, still uh, in the field. It would provide uh, private sector jobs and would actually enhance uh, civil society. Colombia is a vibrant, multi-party democracy. Uh, uh, they are a bulwark uh, in Latin America against the kind of anti-American, anti-democratic socialism that we're seeing in uh, Venezuela uh, and uh, other countries. It would be a huge blunder, both economically and from a foreign policy point of view, to basically insult the people of Colombia uh, by uh, not moving forward on this agreement. I think uh, uh, there are three common threads of the Colombia uh, and the uh, uh, Korean uh, trade agreement that we should keep in mind. Both agreements are with key allies in strategic regions of the world. And these trade agreements, uh, beyond all their economic benefits, strengthen ties not only between our governments but between civil society. When people trade with each other and deepen their commercial ties and traveling between the countries, it strengthens the bonds and the understandings uh, between those countries. Uh, both deliver the level playing field that our politicians are always telling us they want. 
Uh, they would uh, lower barriers here in the United States, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, but they would lower barriers even more in the other countries and give us, when fully implemented, that level zero tariff playing field uh, that the politicians uh, say they want. And uh, as my study shows, and I'll get to in a moment, uh, that means a, a boost for imports to the United States, but an even bigger boost for exports. And, and finally, uh, and I think Bill might have something to say about this too, uh, both keep U.S. producers in the game. You know, one of the features of the bilateral and regional agreements is that if you sit on the sidelines and you don't sign them, other countries are signing them. Uh, and when uh, uh, Korea has an agreement with the European Union, as they will of July 1st, that means European exporters to Korea will have a zero tariff environment, whereas U.S. companies will continue to pay the prevailing uh, tariffs. The same with Colombia. They're about to enter agreement with Canada on July 1st. They signed an agreement with Mercosur in 2005 and we're already seeing an erosion of U.S. market share in key agricultural products like wheat and other things uh, losing business to uh, Argentina and their producers that don't have to pay the tariffs. So in a sense we're in a, also in a, a race against the clock uh, for these uh, agreements. Well let me talk a little bit about uh, my study that we released yesterday. It's not real rocket science, uh, uh, tricky uh, methodology. I basically looked at, in the last decade, we have signed free trade agreements with 14 other countries. Uh, Australia, Singapore, Chile, uh, <clears throat> four uh, uh, Arab uh, countries, the Central American uh, countries and the Dominican Republic, DR uh, CAFTA. And with the help of uh, my research assistant, Doug Peterson, uh, I looked at trade flows with those countries. Uh, after we signed the agreement and compared those trade flows to our overall trade trends and asked the very simple but I think a useful question, did trade with those countries grow faster than our overall trade after the agreement, slower, or was there no noticeable difference? And what we found in looking at all 14 countries is that both imports from those countries and exports to those countries grew faster than our overall trade. I think that's a good thing. Um, and then we zeroed in on manufacturing and agriculture, uh, which uh, tend to be more uh, politically sensitive. And what we found with manufacturing trade with those 14 countries, uh, that manufacturing exports grew 10% faster uh, than the overall growth rate of U.S. Uh, exports, uh, dating back to the point of implementation uh, of each agreement. Actually, manufacturing imports from those countries grew at about the same rate as manufacturing <coughs> imports overall, kind of what you'd expect. When their trade barriers go down more than ours, we'll get more of a kick uh, to, uh, to, to exports. <clears throat> Another way to look at it, a decade ago, our collective manufacturing trade balance with those 14 countries was a positive uh, $7 billion. Last year, our collective trade balance with those 14 countries was $36 billion. So those politicians who obsess about the trade balance as some kind of scorecard, they've even delivered uh, on that. The biggest kick uh, is to Chile, uh, $5.6 billion in additional manufacturing exports to Chile over and above what you'd expect from the normal growth of U.S. exports. Uh, the four Arab countries, we had a $1.7 billion in additional exports to those countries over uh, the normal growth uh, of, of U.S. exports. In agriculture, it's much the same story, maybe even more so. 
uh, a 16 percent increase in agricultural exports to those countries over and above the normal growth of U.S. agricultural uh, exports uh, around the world. That amounts to additional $1 billion uh, in exports. Just some examples, among the biggest gainers were uh, exports to Morocco of oil seeds, food oils, and animal feeds, uh, exports to Peru of wheat, corn, and cotton, uh, exports to Australia of animal feeds, meat, poultry, fruits, and frozen juices. Uh, these trade agreements have delivered more trade uh, as, as promised. Uh, service exports, we don't have the same detailed uh, numbers of service exports by country, but if you look at three of the bigger countries, uh, Chile, Australia, and Singapore, both uh, services exports to those countries and services imports uh, were up significantly above the benchmarks of overall uh, growth in U.S. services uh, trade. There is no reason to believe that the pending three trade agreements won't have the same effect on U.S. trade. More trade, more two-way trade. I think trade is good when we're exporting. Trade is good when we're importing. Uh, these agreements promote more trade, but there does seem to be an extra boost uh, to U.S. exports, which is good economically and I think uh, good, good politically. Well, Bill is about to add some color uh, to my, uh, I apologize for my number heavy uh, presentation, um, but all the evidence is pointing in the same direction. These agreements will be good for trade, good for the U.S. economy, good for our broader national interests uh, in the world. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. Uh, next up, we have Bill Lane from Caterpillar. Uh, he has a very lengthy and impressive resume. I'll just give you a couple of highlights with apologies to, to Bill instead of running down the whole thing. Uh, he's the chairman of the U.S. Latin, uh, US Latin American Trade Coalition. He's the co-president of the U.S. Global Leadership Campaign. Uh, he previously, uh, under a nomination or an appointment from Speaker Hastert, uh, served on the HELP Commission, which is a presidential committee examining the effectiveness of U.S. foreign aid. He holds a BS and MA from Penn State, and he's currently an adjunct professor at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. With that, Bill Lane. Well, thank you very much. I'm really the, the easiest introduction. Um, I think I'm unique in this sense. I truly believe I'm the only uh, lobbyist in Washington who for 36 years has worked for the same company, been married to the same woman, and with Joe Paterno, rooted for the same football coach. So I don't think anyone comes close in that regard. First of all, let me just tell you, um, it's an honor. One of my first presentations in Washington was to a Cato uh, Institute. It was at the townhouse they used to have. It was very uh, summery, and you were in, a, in a, uh, a courtyard, and you had lemonade. And it was, you know, very, you know, what you expected Washington was supposed to be like. Everyone sweated a lot. It was midsummer. And we talked about free trade. And we talked about steel tariffs and things of that sort. So it was, it was a real, real honor. Uh, Bill Niskanen was uh, moderating. So, you know, big shoes to follow, but it sounds like to me like you're doing a great job. Let me, let me take this from the macro to the micro, and I'll, I'll be brief, but I really do have a couple points I want to make because, you know, in your career, you're going to remember a lot of votes. Uh, and, and they don't come that often. Every once in a while, there are sort of defining votes. Uh, votes. Are you on the right side of an issue or wrong side? Or are you out looking outward? Or are you looking inward? Uh, is it a pure uh, partisan vote or not? This is going to be a big vote. You're going to remember how your boss and how you worked on the three FTAs. It's been, you know, it's been a slow period on trade, and hopefully this is going to start a, uh, a new trend toward uh, trade liberalization. Uh, 
Um, I have to say on reflection, um, and I don't think I recognized it at the time, but I now truly believe that Bill Clinton was the greatest free trade president America's ever had. And I think George Bush 43 did more to help poor people around the world, especially in Africa, than any American president. And neither one of them got one vote for it. So it's really our charge to try to help people when they make the right vote to be rewarded both in history but also uh, with the electric. And I think you know, this is going to be one of those uh, opportunities. From a Caterpillar perspective, well, from an overall perspective, uh, I've had, I got, there's a Caterpillar uh, uh, brochure out there. But I added at the very end a chart about the trade deficit. And just think about this for a second, because the trade deficit is big. And I truly believe Cato's views on the trade deficit are correct. There's a, a lot of pluses and minuses that go into it. But think about it from this sense. The United States has a sizable trade surplus on services. We have a reasonable trade surplus for agricultural goods. We've got a very big trade deficit on oil, and we have an enormous trade deficit on manufactured goods. But there is a, there's a noteworthy exception there. If you take the 17 countries where the U.S. has a free trade agreement and put them together as a group, we actually have a trade surplus for manufactured goods. Now, this doesn't mean every country is in a trade surplus uh, category. Israel, for example, uh, we have a trade deficit because we import a lot of gems from Israel. I don't think anyone really complains about that, but it means it's a trade deficit. Uh, Mexico, there's a, a trade deficit. There's a surplus in Canada. But overall, what that does, and I think this is really important for all your constituents, it proves that if the playing field is truly level or pretty close to level, American companies, American manufacturers, American workers do pretty well. We, we punch above our weight. We can compete with anyone. So the goal is how do you make it, how do you make it fair? Now, during this debate, we caused a lot of uh, uh, focus in that when the administration announced they were going to have a free trade agreement with Korea, um, we were very insistent that we also get a free, do a free trade agreement with uh, Colombia and Panama. Those were largely for very parochial reasons. These are big markets for Caterpillar. Uh, Colombia is Caterpillar's ninth largest market. Some of the biggest coal mines in the world are in Colombia. And Panama, in fact, we export more to Colombia. Now, the word is export, not sell, export to Colombia than we do in India, than we do in Japan, than we do in Germany. Now, those markets are bigger, but we also produce outside the U.S. From, from an export perspective, Colombia is very important. Panama, I don't know if any of you have been down there, but I encourage you to take that fact-finding trip. Uh, I think you'll learn more if you go in the winter. Um, hint. Uh, but, uh, they're, but they're expanding the Panama Canal. It's going to be completed in 2014. We exported more to uh, Panama last year than we did to Korea. And Korea, as Dan pointed out, is a much, much bigger economy. But, you know, there, you know, and this is sort of a lesson. You know, focus on small as well as big. Um, uh, Panama is quadrupling the size of their airport in Panama City. They want to make Copa Airlines a world-class airline. So to do that, they're buying over 30 Boeing jets. To make those jets fly, you need GEO engines. 
So they're buying 120 plus GE engines. So even if it's a, and on top of that, expanding the canal, which really does excite somebody from Caterpillar, means we're, we're exporting an awful lot of uh, earth-moving equipment to Panama. So even small markets can be very significant at times. Now, when we looked at the uh, effort, we tried to get the administration's attention, and we took an ad out in Politico, which, by the way, just won a platinum award for advocacy. And what it essentially said was, um, you know, this is not the time to kick a field goal on trade. And the line that really did sort of hit a raw nerve with the administration was in the ad it said, passing Korea without passing Colombia and Panama is like kicking a field goal on second down. And that sort of, you know, the administration rightfully wanted some kudos for completing Korea. It was tough to do. And here, instead of saying thank you, and we should say thank you, it was a, a heck of an accomplishment, we were saying, well, what about Colombia and Panama? And I think some of the administration thought it was a bridge too far. They all wanted it. There was no opposition to it from an intellectual standpoint. It was purely the political reality. But, you know, whether it was uh, Senator Baucus or Speaker Boehner, they all got together and said, you know, now's the time to do all three. Besides that, there should never be any suggestion that there's a double standard for Latin America. Now, when we look at Latin America, and I think we are somewhat representative of American exporters. Caterpillar is one of the largest American exporters. And as long as I've been with Caterpillar, exports have been an important part of our business uh, plan. And now we are exporting far more, over half of what we make in the United States we export. But something's changed in the last four years. We are now exporting more than half of what we export to non-OECD countries. We used to just export to rich countries. Now we're exporting to the, the, the non-OECD countries. And Chile, by the way, is now an OECD country, and that's a big market. So, um, so that's a change. So we're focusing a lot more on these emerging markets. When we look at Latin America versus Asia, all the big companies, you know, we are all coming up with strategies to figure out how we can be number one in Asia. And we're implementing those strategies. But part of that strategy means we have to have a presence in Asia. So we have to produce in Asia. Latin America, American companies tend to serve Latin America from products made in the United States. So when we look at our top 10 export markets, six of them are Latin markets. Chile, of all the FTAs I've worked on, I got to tell you, Chile has the best results for a couple reasons. One, it's been a reform-minded country. And one of the reasons why the country has grown so well is whether it had a right-of-center government or a left-of-center government, they always kept the policies sort of between the 40-yard lines. They practice what we preach. They remember the excesses of Allende and Pinochet, and they, they've really been reform-minded for a consistent period of time. When they get extra money because of a high price of copper or something like that, they take that extra money and they put it into three things. Better education, that pays dividends. Better infrastructure, we sort of like that one. But that makes them for, they have a more efficient economy. And then they put some money away for a rainy day fund. And as a result, 2009, they sort of were able to manage their way through 2009 without a whole lot of trouble. Plus, they've become a model for other countries. Peru has been following that model. Colombia has been following that model. And you're seeing enormous growth there. They also embrace trade liberalization more than any other country uh, in the, actually in the hemisphere. Now what happened with the results? 
After the free trade agreement, and this is true for Caterpillar, but it's true for the overall economy, U.S. exports to Chile tripled. Chile's our fifth, sixth largest market year in and year out now, export market. But imports increased threefold too. Now, what are we getting from Chile? Well, in the wintertime, you're getting fresh grapes. When I was a kid, you didn't get fresh grapes in the winter, but now you do. Or a product that I know you all are most interested in, you get high quality, reasonably priced wine in the winter too. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it keeps you a little more mellow, a little healthy for you. It allows Republicans and Democrats to play well together. But my point is, we get a, sta a higher standard of living because of the imports from Chile. And we get a higher standard of living because of our exports to Chile. It's really been a remarkable agreement. And when you look at all 17, it's probably the one that was the most front-end loaded as far as trade liberalization and has gotten the best results. Let me um, just say I'm optimistic. I think next month is going to be the month where this all comes together. We can talk about trade adjustment assistance and other things uh, in the Q&A. But I'd like to just end with some lessons that perhaps we can all learn from business that would help us grow the U.S. economy and, and generate jobs, which I know every one of your bosses desperately wants to see happen over the next couple months. One is we've got to be willing to address our fundamental problems, whether that's dealing with deficits or whether that's dealing with opening foreign markets or competitiveness issues. In business, you know, we're changing. I mean, we're, we're on the vanguard of reducing health care costs. It's not always easy, but we do it. Um, you know, defined benefit plans have been replaced largely by defined contribution plans. Wherever, if you're losing money and you don't fix it in a hurry, you're not around. So, I mean, there's always a, a, a recognition that we have to address our fundamental issues. Two, we've got to do it with a sense of urgency. I have never been in an executive meeting at Caterpillar where we sit around and we're going, you know, we've got a little competitive advantage because we did something. Why don't we just sort of sit on our hands for a couple years and let our competitors catch up? And then we'll try to do something else. We had a competitive advantage in certain markets because of the free trade agreement. We could have had a competitive advantage with the ones that are pending. But we sort of focused on other priorities. Now, time will tell you what kind of damage that has done. But clearly, we're now reaching the point where we can't wait anymore. If anything, we just have to have a level playing field. Before, we would have had a competitive advantage. Canada has an agreement going into effect uh, August 1 with Colombia. They've got other agreements that they're working on that will go into effect next year. Um, uh, Korea has an FTA going into effect with the European community. Uh, we could have been ahead of that, but that goes into effect July 1. The point is we have to start acting with a sense of urgency. Third, we've got to be civil to each other. You know, the one great thing about trade is it forces face-to-face uh, -face communications. And you know, when you're dealing with people on a, on, a, on a daily or weekly basis, you tend to forget some of the excesses that sometimes permeate our, our political uh, system. And I think, I know in business, you know, listen, we're, we're going to take on our competitors as hard as ever. But we, you know, we try to manage our disagreements with a sense of civility. And I think this is something that we all need to do a better job on. I talked about Panama. Sometimes small markets can become very important. Don't take anything for granted. Um, 
Panama is sort of an exciting place, and uh, right now it's sort of like a Caterpillar commercial, so I encourage you to go down there. Um, and then, uh, then lastly, and this is the something I think you're going to be talking more about this three years from now than you are right now. We, you know, when you talk in, in Washington, and you always come up with the same programs that worked. You know, when, whenever you're trying to think of something big, you go, you know, we need a new Marshall Plan. Or uh, we need a Manhattan Project. Or Apollo. Project Apollo got us to the moon. That's what we need. We need a program like that. And they never quote any other ones. Those are always the three. We have had a bipartisan effort for a dozen years now called Plan Columbia. It wasn't cheap. It was close to a billion dollars a year. It was supported by President Clinton and Speaker Hastert. It was largely bipartisan. It incorporated hard power and soft power. It worked. Now, was it a, the whole cost of it over 10, 12 years is about two weeks of what Iraq costs. That's not saying, you know, it was cheap, but it worked. And I somehow, I think, once this agreement goes through, because this is sort of a validation that this is a new Columbia. It's, you know, the, the other validation, I was down, uh, in fact, I'm going down to Cartagena next week, but we were in Bogota when Disney announced that their cruise ships were going to start going to Cartagena. Now, in this country, it was a one-paragraph story. In Colombia, it was a celebration because it proved that we are a normal country. We're safe enough for Disney. That means we're safe enough to attract foreign investment, which means it's safe enough for our children to play in the streets. That was a heck of a validation. When this agreement goes through, and the agreement goes through with Korea and Panama, I, do, I think when we start seeing problems around the world, we're not going to say we need a, uh, let's say Libya, we need a, 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 a Marshall Plan or a Manhattan Project. God, I hope we don't say a Manhattan Project. But, uh, but I do think we're going to start saying, you know, we need a Plan Columbia for, for whatever country we're talking about. A, 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 a plan that isn't naive, that recognizes the need to address security, but also engages people and brings people together so that they can have a better future. Looking forward to your questions. It is truly an honor to be here. And I have to say, um, we don't always support everything Cato proposes publicly. <laughs> Privately, we always do. Thanks a lot. <laughs>